0: Hello, and welcome back. Long time no see, people. I really hope you're all fine. I'm starting out with a blessed meeting that I had earlier this summer. I bumped, almost by accident, into distant relatives who happen to live in Ohio, of all places. And guess what we talked about? They happen to live uh, quite nearby Columbus, so the area isn't totally unfamiliar for them, you could say. And uh, in regards to Brian Schaefer, there hasn't been much fuss about his case lately. Quite many podcast apps on his case have been released, but nothing out of the ordinary that I've listened to. However, a very well-known podcast has had an off-the-record part released in June, mentioning Brian for a long while. I'll uh, release something from my end on what was said, and it's nothing really major, but Still, the guys running the podcast are local to Columbus and uh, well-versed in Brian's disappearance, you could say. You probably know who I'm talking about. Uh, in one sighting, they ask you to put a for your hat on. And come to think of it, I'll actually ask you to save that hat. Because I've got something of that sort to talk about next time, too. So, this episode will cover another peculiar disappearance that I briefly mentioned in a continuation episode of Christopher Tompkins. And this case isn't really as well known as it should have been, given the circumstances and how it unfolded. The case is interesting because in one way it gives food for thought on what the core essence of a disappearance really is about. Is it a conventional gun missing and not found? The fact that there can be a myriad of explanations to why disappearance occurs is normally clear. And when this person can't be found or located, has the party searching ended up with poor results because of mediocre pledge and intentions, a lack of resources? Or has the individual disappeared in such an extraordinary way that that is the key to not getting any answers? In the case of accidents and health-related misfortunes, the surrounding environment can be so complex that it's not easy to unearth where the missing person is. So now that we have elevated our thought process a little bit, let us wander into this disappearance. What are we going to witness, and how can we interpret it? Is what's portrayed exactly what happened, or do we have any reason to doubt? We head to the beautiful wilderness of Idaho, the gem state, and to the largest county in the state, a county with the same name as the state itself, Idaho County. This county is 8,500 square miles in size, an absolutely huge county that houses an entire national park, and has two time zones of its own. And here we accompany a young production assistant, who has just arrived with a filming crew of a dozen people. Here, at an area called Oro Grande, the Discovery Channel has ordered an episode. For one of the greatest television successes ever, Gold Rush. Can a guy risk it all in America anymore? Six men. You're about to lose your house. Don't lose faith. Risk everything. No guts, no glory. To strike it rich. Where is the gold? At first, everything goes on smoothly. But then something happens with our young production assistant, and an almost bizarre and incomprehensible event takes place. Here is the disappearance of Terence Woods. On the East Coast, in Maryland, on September 30, 2018, Terence Woods is sitting in a car on his way to the airport. Behind the wheel, his father, with the same name, but with a typical American intitulation Senior instead. Terence is scheduled to fly to the more remote state of Montana, where he will gather up with an entire team to work as a production assistant. The production company is British. And it's called Raw TV. The idea is then to continue towards Idaho and then in turn to other states and film on site until the first week of November. Terence, 27, is a TV assisting production star on the rise. After studying at the University of Maryland Terence headed over to England where he resided and earned his living for more than five years. On the resume was active work in well-known TV programs such as The Voice and BBC's Saving Africa's Elephants, where Terence spent prolonged time in Africa. In other assignments, he traveled around Europe and in Turkey. In the industry, Terence Woods was given the epithet, intelligent and full-on reliable. Terence had decided to return to the States, and he went back to the family home in Maryland the life as an itinerant TV man traveling around the globe had become incommodious, and he felt like lying low for a while with it, maybe get an ordinary 8-to-5 job, and acquiring a steadier and more predictable lifestyle. In a quiet corner of the home, he lived with his father and younger brother. The mother lived elsewhere and the parents had separated, but the father was overjoyed so that both Terence and little brother lived at home with him. Terence Senior took care of everything. busted his behind working, but never demanded for the sons to pay for anything. The family was of African American origin, but Terence had a very bright skin color, was five foot nine tall, and weighed around one hundred thirty pounds. With a complete shaved haircut and two curious deep eyes, he had an appearance one sees hints that the individual is well ordered and diligent. But Raw TV weren't really keen to let Terence go, just yet. The company had seriously started to get into the role as a producing outlet on Discovery's behalf, and their program, Gold Rush, was riding high. One of the episodes would be recorded the Idaho's abandoned Penman mine. Here you follow the personality of Dave Turin and his rigors in helping locals sway and look for gold. After several junior executives former industry employees, recommended Terence. RotTV offered him the role as a freelance production assistant, and Terence accepted the assignment. As usual, Terence had prepared carefully. Various backpacks with suitable clothes provision and supplies were brought along, and the father helps to unload them from the car. Once at the gate, Terence says, see you later, after giving him a hug. The father replies, see you sooner. When Terence had inwards, the father isn't aware it would be the last time he saw his son. The flight over to Montana goes well, and on Monday, when Terence lands, he spends time with the new team. Everyone on site is British, and for everyone Terence is a new face. The leading figure in the crew is the producer, Simon G. He's the guy who points and waves and makes sure that everyone does what they're supposed to out in the wilderness and during the filming. Terence was supposed to act as his assistant during the recordings. His role included to inform directives from Simon to the rest of the team, but also being a personalized helper on site for Simon himself, such as dealing him equipment, fetching him food and drinks, etc. The plan onward is to make way towards Idaho County and Nez Perce National Park. Where by Friday, October the 5th, a full day would be spent filming at the Bannon mines. Everything seems to be flowing, and Terence sends pictures and messages and chats with the mother over the phone. On Thursday, the 4th, Terence sends a text message to his father, "Hey, Dad, I just arrived at the hotel in Idaho." On October the 5th, the team prepares to head out to the mines, where the entire event was to be filmed. As a base for this day, they started off from the small town of Elk City, place in the middle of nowhere that was established in the eighteenth century during the Gold Rush. The only way to get to the area is by highway fourteen. A stunning sight with those who travel on this road. High mountainous and tall, archaic trees in dense forests, with flowing rivers and streams. Just pure nature and completely unguarded wilderness. Highway 14 in turn starts from the more inhabited town of Grangeville. From here the team and Road TV had recruited two guides who piloted the team around on off-road vehicles around Elk City and the mines. The area had an elevation of 6000 feet above sea level and was at this time of year in a canon transformation from late autumn to winter. The bare ground is starting to receive lighter snowfalls that paints the landscape with white, and temperature had started to fall below 40 degrees. Meanwhile, Terence sends a ten-second video to his father with no message or text, but only titled Idaho. The clip shows a river flowing surrounded by forest, with a thick mysterious mist spreading across the landscape. A reporter who later saw the clip stated that he thought it felt ominous, unpleasant. According to some reports, Terence calls his dad in the morning, probably from Elk City where there was cell coverage. But the call is short and Terence Sr. says they can talk later in the day. But after an hour, Terence sends a text message to his father saying he will leave Idaho and return home on Wednesday, October 10th. This means that he will cut the mission short by several weeks, something he hadn't done prior. Then Terrence and a team head towards the Penman Mine. This Friday from early morning to late afternoon, the team spend a day by filming on different locations at the mines. According to statements, it all goes well. The atmosphere is joyful. The crew members are jubilous and relieved to soon turn back towards the settlement and leave the wilderness for this day. Producer Simon G sits in a vehicle and is filling out a checklist, and he makes notice that Terence stands a bit further away at the ledge towards a steep slope. Simon gets a strange gut feeling, and not even a minute later, Terence is gone. Simon jumps out of the vehicle and rushes towards the ledge, thinking Terence had fallen down the hillside. He spots, that the field radio Terence had held, seemed to have been thrown into the ground, and when he looks down, he sees something strange. In his own words, Simon G. describes seeing Terence, rushing down the almost vertical slope like a hare at the speed. He's never seen anyone move. Simon immediately realizes that he will have obvious trouble following off the turns. In addition, Simon knows from his search and rescue training that calling out a person in the situation only creates further tension. He quickly alerts the team and makes them aware of what's happened. Summon a group, throw, despite obvious risks themselves down against the ledge after Terence, but swiftly return, bruised up and with parts of their garments torn apart. The ledge down is full of rocky debris, sharp edged cliff sides, fallen cracked tree trunks. The group from above can hear Terence descending. Branches are trampled down along with similar surrounding sounds. Then it becomes dead quiet. The people present at the scene are absolutely convinced that Terence has fallen to his death. Simon now directs some of the team members to mount the off-roaders and ride towards the road below the glimpses from the ledge, and that Terence must have ended up on after the rush or the fall down the cliff. But riding back and forth on this road doesn't clear the picture up. They can't observe anything in regard to Terence at all. It is now realized that it's also no possibility to call for external help, as there is some cell coverage in this remote wilderness. But the two local guides the team had brought along would come to play a critical role in the situation. One of the guides, Benny, was aware where help was available. He knew that a former retired DAA agent periodically lived not too far from the area where they were. And Benny lead parts of the team to the former agent's cabin, where a satellite phone was located. The second guide, who was hired for the shoot, would later turn out to be the last person to talk to Terence before he threw himself down the hillside. Cherie, as the guide was called, would later recount what happened, and be the important independent key witness to these events. Events, if one was not present and witnessed almost had not believed in. When the Benny team arrives at the cabin, they get access to the satellite phone. It's unclear who says what, but the call is dialed to 911. Later, Terence Sr. would receive an excerpt on the call he shared. Advice that a male Terence Woods, 27, from London, works for a TV company that was creating a movie in the area of Penman Mine. Never been in the woods. No guns. Terence has been having a really hard time emotionally and had a mental breakdown earlier today. Dark complexion and light clothes. Terence is not giving respond back to responders. Terence does not have communication. There are people searching for him now. Producer Simon G tries to coordinate his own rescue effort with the help from the team. And they enter parts of the dense forest. But Terence cannot be found. When darkness descends, they can do nothing but wait for search and rescue. That, as they understood it, will be on its way. The next day, early Saturday, Simon calls and informs Terence Sr. what's happened to his son. In sheer wonder and in shock, Terence Sr. has further contact with the company's headquarter in London, and Rot decides to fly Terence's parents over to Idaho to follow the search effort. And to get on to all the details of their son's disappearance on site. Then we learned that Search and Rescue arrived in the forest around the Panman mine and started their efforts directly on Saturday. In connection with this disappearance, we also get acquainted with the Idaho County Sheriff's Office located in the capital, Grangeville. An Italian press release from the office I later described how the search and rescue operation had been conducted. On October 5th at 6.45 p.m., the Idaho County Sheriff's Office was notified of a missing person. Terence Woods, 27, of Maryland, had become separated from his party, a film crew from London doing a documentary on the Panama mines. Due to the late hour of the report, searching did not commence until Saturday, October 6th. Three dog teams from Clearwater County, ground searchers, and personnel from U.S. Forest Service arrived on Saturday and began searching with deputies Stan Denham. A rescue helicopter also did an aerial search of the area. Fish and game canvassed the area and stayed late into the night, checking with hunters and continued to search. Mr. Boots was not located. On Sunday, Deputy Denham, ground searchers, U.S. Forest Service and Fish and Game personnel and dog teams resumed searching. Rain hampered tracking efforts. On Monday, in addition to searches previously listed, a UH UH-1 helicopter from Fairchild Air Force Base responded to do more aerial searches. Searches continued on Tuesday, Wednesday and Thursday with the same search teams and air support. The decision to cut back active search was made Thursday afternoon. No leads were obtained from the previous seven days of searching and no sign of Mr. Woods has been located in the search area or the expanded search area. The Idaho County Sheriff's Office will continue to monitor the area and investigate leads. The search effort and the press release remain the key effort the Sheriff's Office undertook to try to find Terence Woods. Worth to note is that another missing person search went underway the same day as Terence disappeared. This had been in the Fog Mountain area, near Orogrande, in fact, and this must unequivocally have diverted manpower and attention from solely searching after Terence. Terence Woods' own parents came to Grandville a day into the search effort, and had been promised a meeting with the Raw TV team. Before the meeting, on the first visit to the sheriff's office, Terence Senior says that their local employee, who manned the phones when the alarm call was made, covertly told him that everyone present, had thought the call had sounded artificial and fabricated. Terence Senior receives a transcript of the call, which he appropriately saves for a later date. He also gets back the belongings of Terence, like the bag packed with winter clothes and the father notes that most of the garments are untouched in a bag. He doesn't see any used or dirty clothes. In the backpack he also finds a folding knife and a stun gun that Terence had brought with him. A camera and Terence's laptop are also handed over, as well as a cold calendar in black leather that the son had used and wrote in. When the Woods eventually visit the sheriff's office to attend the meetings, they were surprised that only producer Simon G. and two incoming executives from England are present. The company felt Simon G. solely had been the right man to convey what happened to Terence and the right person to answer any questions that their parents could have had. According to Terence Sr., most things go wrong here. He and her mother have of course pondered the circumstances on how Terence disappeared. He cannot for the life of his understand what has been conveyed from RAW TV. Later, acquaintance and colleagues of Terence would confirm the family's own view that Terence had at least previously been a very stable and reliable person to work with and well traveled. A trip to the wilderness of Alaska, for example, was made before the visit to Idaho without any issues. Privately, Terence had no medical or mental health problems. Terence's father, however, commented in interviews that Terence had had special shoe soles for several hundred dollars, made as Terence was flatfoot, and it made him a little clumsy. A sign, according to the father, on the statement that Terence ran like a hare on that mountain slope, couldn't have been correct. But in that room, with producer Simon G, Simon G, in his mind, is probably doing everything he can to deliver the parents what happened on the set at Pem and Mine. At the same time, Simon G doesn't deliver what his parents want to hear, Terence had outwardly for the film team, who had not worked with him previously, had some difficulties and oddities to himself during the day. Not knowing him and trying to figure out if this was out of character, they probably used the language and chose the words that made the parents even more suspicious of the team and Simon G. Simon tried to understand if Terence had had similar problems in the past, but it was interpreted by the parents that Simon was disappointed. Terrans Terrence came recommended and were reputed to the site, for example, didn't manage simple things like getting the proper outfits for the crew. The sheriff, a hard-eyed individual who himself with his few employees and his office was in charge of this massive land area, also had to respond to Terrence Sr.'s skepticism. When the emergency call to 911 was raised during the meeting, the sheriff at the time rejects that there had been any allusion to Terrence's skin color and mental health. Apparently the wrong answer. As Terence Sr. had the log from the call, which he had not revealed prehand. There's something fishy about all this, Terence Sr. thought. We'd better get out of here before we disappear ourselves. Since that bit of a nervous breakdown could be a plausible explanation, it really got, however relevant it may have been, no greater anchoring in the answer to why Terence acted the way he did. No one at Draw TV really wanted to comment further on the information and how it found its way to the emergency call either. The fact that the nervous breakdown was toned down has also to do with the fact that if Terence had shown signs of such a behavior during the film shootings, someone on the ground would have to act in accordance with the applicable regulation for work environment. Raw TV would have had a responsibility to take care of Terence or request assistance if he had shown such problems, which they didn't. The parents or people familiar with Terence didn't want to acknowledge that was a reason either. To valorize their stance that the nefarious reason lay behind its disappearance. So this scenario was in fact almost entirely eradicated from the narrative from all parties. The sheriff who found the events at Pemme Mine Bazaar could only conclude with a pragmatic stance that they went to look for Terence and didn't find him, whether Terence had been depressed or not. After the futile search effort, search and rescue crews told the sheriff that had Terence been in the search area, they would have found him. If he had been injured or had wanted to be found, they would have found him. They were always one step behind, he says. Terence probably heard the staff on sight and hid and did not want to appear and make himself known. On another occasion, the sheriff said he did not rule out that Terence may have left the area from the road below the ledge, for example by being picked up with a vehicle and disappearing in that way. The terrain where Terence had been in was a time really miserable and difficult to pass, with so many fallen trees and trunks that the shoes barely touched the ground. Benny, one of the guides and familiar with the area for generations, diminished the possibility that Terence could have left the area off the road. Benny himself had been involved in a search for Terence from the get-go, and he mentioned that a vehicle had not been able to escape his and the others' attention. Since it had recently snowed, there were no tire tracks or anything like that either. He did not believe in this scenario. Instead, he described. How the landscape around the mines was full of hidden airlocks. These tight but very deep holes in the ground were dug out by the miners to transport oxygen down to the mining isle. Some of these had been marked out and sealed off, but Benny mentioned that there were countless more excavated over the decades when the area was processed during the gold rush, and he believed that the probability was high the Terence could have fallen down and disappeared into one. After the search efforts, Raw TV didn't make much fuss. Shortly after Terence's disappearance, the entire team continued to film the remaining episodes of *The Turin's Gold Rush*. Police said the sheriff found no suspicion against the film crew on the scene, or that they had, in an nefarious way, caused Terence Woods to disappear. Quote, they wanted to believe that the movie company was guilty of something, and we couldn't determine that the movie company was guilty of anything. End quote. Thus. No criminal investigation was launched. This in turn meant that no attempt was actually made to find any answers for the parents who were all the more suspicious. The laptop was left untouched. no attempts to review phone use was made. Bank accounts were also not verified, for example, in the sheriff's eyes, this was a disappearance entirely of its own accord. Terence had wanted to get away. To get some answers in this regard, the family were left to investigate themselves and without the help of law enforcement agencies, an almost impossible mission on your own. Snooping around in the private affairs of others, whether it was your own son or not, could really only properly be done with a court order, and to get one you had to prove that a crime had been committed, something that the sheriff, as said, did not substantiate. You also learn more about the reason Terence had told his family that he would be coming home earlier from the filming. Apparently, Terence's mother was scheduled to go to a physical exam on October 11th. Terence wanted to come back home on the 10th. Before leaving for the shooting in Idaho, he had expressed a vague desire to be there when his mother was to be examined in support of her. Perhaps she was to deal with the cancer screening, and it turned out Terence had talked to the production company about this. Rot TV had arranged for a plane ticket so Terence could get home. But both parents says Terence had since been updated, and had found out about that the chances that it could be something so serious were downplayed, so to go back home and leave the shootings felt illogical in their eyes. According to them, this was just a pretext that Terence had put forward to the team, but that something else was really the problem. The mother and father believed that Terence was mistreated by the team, and that he saw or heard something. That was not intended for him to see or hear, and that that day he fled for his life. The sheriff didn't understand why Terence acted the way he did, considering that if he had wanted to leave, he could have left the day prior, and that that very Friday they were completely done with the recordings and were on their way back to the hotel. Despite the family's great scepticism, the sheriff had an ace up his sleeve. One person mentioned earlier in this episode. Namely, the local guide, Cherie. She ran a rental transportation business in Grangeville. And the sheriff knew exactly who she was. There was no need to trust either productions team from London. Or inquiring parents from Maryland. Cherie was a completely independent local party. That the sheriff knew well. And she happened to be the one Terence talked to at the end. Before what happened, happened. When Fox News 5 gets hold of Cherie. She recounts what she witnessed that Friday, October 5th. Cherie begins by telling how she and her husband drove the team up steep winding roads in off-roaders to the Pemmen mine. Once the recordings were about to start, the participants split up. A group was inside a mine and filmed Dave Turin as they examined the old tunnels for gold deposits. Terence and a few others oversaw the events from the outside, so she had a lot of interaction with Terence during the day as he hadn't been in the heat, so to speak, inside a mine. Terence had told of how he got the job, and he had told her details about him and his family, not always in a positive tone. She also noted that Terence had trouble doing simple things, like handing the producer a camera lens. At one point, he tried to take a drone down from the air, with some of the team shouting no Terence, beware you can hurt yourself. She had only seen the team co-workers behaving kindly and civilly towards each other. Towards the end of the day, when the recordings were over, everyone was in good mood. They came back and shouted happily that they were finally done. She and Terence and Simon, and another person, are standing at the same place. She just exchanged a few sentences with Terence, as he walks towards one of the vehicles and picks something up. He says, I'm going to make things right. He had had a completely blank stare. She turns around, and later she hears Simon call out, "No, Terence." Terence had thrown himself down the slope, just as described. In retrospect, when Cherie thought about that day, she said Terence was behaving strangely, and she pondered that what he ultimately did was entirely planned. She was absolutely convinced. Talking about Roo TV and their on-spot engagement, she only had good things to say. Describing Simon G as the ultimate person to have around if something similar happened, totally dedicated to trying to find Terence. Simon hadn't slept during the night and had called the father as soon as the situation allowed. The team from Fox News Five also gets to read Terence's black leather calendar. Terence had kept some notes in it. The hard-nosed sheriff had spoken about the lines in the calendar as incomprehensible gibberish but the team from Fox News found that Terence had written about a Great Reset, something spectacular that would be reset, and that the television industry could do without him and his talent. For Terence Senior and Mom, there was nothing more to do after visiting Idaho than to go home. Terence Senior shortly afterwards hired a private investigator, who, when asked what he managed to deliver, Terence Senior replied, a fat bill. Despite an appearance on Dr. Phil's 2020 program, nothing of value has emerged than that that was conveyed by Raw TV, employees and the local guide. Only four-year mark passed for Terence's disappearance, nothing that would make you wiser of the events of that day has come to light. As I said in the introduction, and in these absolutely mysterious cases, what's the disappearance at its core about? Is what was portrayed exactly what happened, or do we have any reason to doubt? And why don't we find them? As mentioned, the surrounding environment can be so complex that it's not easy to unearth where the missing person is. And how more rugged can things get than Oro Grande, Idaho County? But in reality, it don't seem to matter where it is. It's evidently not easier on mile-long cornfields, as the case of Brendan Swanson, stretches of oak and pine trees and swampland in Christopher Tompkins' case, or the city environment as for Brian Schaefer. But also, human nature is not without fault. We have it sort of built in in our DNA to be logical and rational, and we apply that common trait when searching for a missing person. In parts of these hopeless vanishings, the person missing is in thinking sound and acting rational. Something then and there is fundamentally clouding their judgement to a degree that they don't just simply lay down or stop where you would expect them to. It's all bewildering and part of the mystery that not even technical gadgets, drones, helicopters catches a glimpse of them, or that canines most often misses them too. But ultimately, these resources are just an extended arm of our own capabilities. They are controlled and monitored by people with the same conventional thinking. Terence Sr. said he could have understood it more if it had been a fatal accident. They could have brought Terence's remains home and in the midst of that terrible tragedy, taking things from there. At least, that would have been an answer, something to try to process. Now it was this hellish limbo, not knowing if Terence really is dead, or if he's still alive and suffering every day. Raw TV never chose to air that episode that Terence had produced, and they haven't really been in touch with the family since those first few weeks when Terence disappeared. The situation of not paying too much attention to the case Seems to have suited the production company well. However, after the Black Lives Matter movement made its rampage in 2020, voices were raised to pressure OTV to release all the info it had and stop being so secretive. Several articles about Terence's disappearance appeared in Vice and Deadline, and Terence's disappearance was also mentioned in Dr. Phil. A press release then came out from the production company. Terence was a popular figure on Raw. He was a well-liked and esteemed member of the production team, and his disappearance affected us all deeply. Terence disappeared in a remote, densely wooded and mountainous area of Idaho that was particularly challenging to search. From the beginning, our site was actively involved in the search for Terence, and we put a lot of effort and resources into trying to find him, which included flying his mother and father along with two raw executives to Idaho to help with an investigation conducted by the sheriff's office. Terrence Sr. says every day since Terrence's disappearance has been as difficult as the first. I don't want to see any movies with someone running through the woods because I'm thinking about my son. Some nights I hear my son shout, dad, dad. At 8.34, my son texts me back. He said, dad, I'm coming home on Wednesday the 10th. Between that and no time, something went wrong. Then the next call I get is from the company saying my son disappeared. I can't find a trace of him. We can only hope that the father and the family will at some point get some sort of closure. Thank you for listening. Terrence Woods Sr. has a GoFundMe a page called Find My Missing Son Terrence Woods goal of the fundraiser is soon reached i'll put up a link i thank you for rating and sharing this podcast series until next time good people see ya